Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Good morning and happy Father's Day. I got a triple shout out. First off is to all you fathers that were instrumental in getting your family here this morning. Well done. Great job. That's like, like humble, humble servant spiritual leadership. And even if you just acquiesced, that's a step in the right direction. So good job. Uh, second is for all those here who did not have a good earthly father. He was not a good or godly presence. Maybe he wasn't even present at all. And if I could just say I'm so sorry. But to remind you that the one who created him, your perfect, eternal, heavenly father is perfect, good, and loving. And he's always been there for you. Thirdly, we have a second time father. Uh, not with us today, but Matt and uh, Marissa Jacob. Matt is, uh, got his second child, a, a first son. So Matt and Marissa, they're members of the congregation. Congratulations if you're watching. And uh, baby Luke was born this last week, and so we're pumped. Uh, welcome to uh, playing man-to-man defense on the family front now. So and then it just gets crazier from there when you go to three and four. So, Okay, well, listen, this morning here on Father's Day, we're continuing on allowing the scripture to be our guide and to be our template what are we going to talk about today? So we're back in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. We're studying the book of Joshua. This is a book about faith, obedience, mission, up and coming generations. Uh, it's about new beginnings. It's about taking territory for the Lord. But it's also about the character of the man, Joshua. He was a servant. He was a spy. He was a warrior and a leader. Joshua was, was a man of faith and action, but not a man without weaknesses, flaws, or failures. And isn't that the life of faith? Okay, if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. That's what we always said when we were snow skiing or water skiing. If you're not crashing... You're not doing it right. You're playing it safe, too safe. And the reality is that Joshua is this man of action that's trying. He's maxing it out, but while he's maxing it out and serving the Lord, he ain't getting it perfect. But at least he's swinging for the fences. I'm reminded one of my favorite presidents, not a perfect man by any means, nor were his policies, but uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And I love this quote by Roosevelt, and, and really, uh, it's like a personal favorite. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, because strong men do stumble, by the way, or who, where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again. Because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. 
But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so this place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Man, I just feel like that resonates with my life. That no, I haven't gotten it perfect. Bloodied and dusty and, and, and bruised, but God willing, I'm still up and I'm still trying and I'm still swinging for the fences. You, this is the walk of faith. This is the man Joshua. Which one of us is here who has not failed, who is, does not fail regularly in our lives, in our relationships, in our morality, in our, in our vocation? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You say, yeah, but that was the old me. Really? 1 John 1.8 says this, if we say we have no sin, like we got that out of the way, now I'm a good guy. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The word for sin in both of these texts, hamartia is the word, it's an archery term. It literally means to miss the mark. And if you went to Strong's Concordance, you would also see mistake or error. It's all these things. Normally we think uh, that, that sin is a moral and spiritual kind of miss, of missing the mark. But listen, there are relational and financial and logistical, all kinds of missing the mark, all kinds of misses in our lives. And you know what? These misses are costly. And we're covered in scars, um, sometimes physically, but, but definitely metaphorically speaking. We're covered in our scars from these misses. But I just need to let you know that if you're trying, you're going to miss. And it's just part of the journey of faith. And the question is not whether or not you miss. The question is what do you do with your misses? And this is Joshua. We're going to see another mistake. Another flaw. Another failing. His story and the account of the conquest takes place between the Exodus and the time of the judges. Joshua is the man who's actually in the arena. He's the one whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly. He's the one who knows the great victories in the name of the Lord, but who also errs and comes up again and again short. Because life and leadership and living on mission is messy. So what can we learn from Joshua this morning? Let me bring you up to speed in the storyline so far from Joshua 1. They've crossed over the Jordan River, all of Israel, three to five million Jews. They've destroyed Jericho. They got their butts handed to them at Ai. They don't know why. They discover there's hidden sin in the camp. They take care of it. So they go back to Ai and destroy it. And then Joshua takes them on a spiritual field trip 30 miles away up to a place called Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. 
a kind of geographical center of all of Canaan in the promised land, in order to renew their covenant with Yahweh God, Moses had instructed them to do this many, many years before, over 40 years before. And here they are, camped out at the base of these mountains, when we read this. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the, the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I, I see six of them there. As soon as they all heard this, what had been going on, Jericho and Ai, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. These guys hated each other, but... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So these knuckle-dragging rascals all begin to band together. And this is what it says in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, we're going to find out they're actually uh, a subgroup of the Hivites, a people slated for destruction. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that jo what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for, for, for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. Real quick there. All the other Canaanites are going, let's band together and kick their butts. And these guys believe in the power of Yahweh God enough to say, yeah, that's not going to work. We're stuck. We need to figure something out. And so they put this plan into motion. Verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live amongst us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where would you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him in all that he did in Egypt. In all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So, real quick there, it's interesting. They don't mention Jericho or Ai because it's part of their, their plan. It's part of their deception. That would be too close and too new. So, they're talking about things that are, that are decades old. It, because they're coming from a faraway land. They don't know anything, but they know stuff. Uh, mark it well. So... It, it says in verse 11, uh, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. Look, it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But look, behold, now it's dry and crumbly. Proof positive, perfect evidence. Sometimes God's people are so gullible. Serious. It says here in, in uh, verse 13, These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they burst. And these garments and sandals are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, like, ooh, ooh, 
true, true love. It, but, it says, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. We'll come back to that in a moment. Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, what's going on in this text? Um, Deuteronomy 20, God told Moses and the Jews that they would be allowed to make covenants with people outside of the land of Canaan. And they could call them to become servants and serve the Lord and serve them, God's people. Okay, so that was permitted. However, according to Deuteronomy 7, the nations within the boundaries of Canaan and the promised land were all to be devoted to destruction. You cannot make a covenant with them. The Gibeonites, part of the Hivites, were a group of people slated for destruction. They likely found out about these scriptures and exploited them to their advantage. And here we see Joshua's twofold miss. It starts with what's called a sin of omission. Two kinds of sins, two categories. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Sins of commission is when you're told, do not do this thing. Do not pass go. And you say, yeah, I'm going to do that thing. I got I to touch it. And so you, you go and you commit a sin of commission. A sin of omission is when the Lord says, I need you to do this thing. And you say, hmm, no thank you. You omit it. And so we got a twofold kind of sin that includes both the sin of omission and a sin of commission. The first sin, the sin of omission is Joshua is told to seek the Lord. And he fails to seek the Lord. And because he fails to seek the Lord, he commits a sin of commission and does something that God said, do not do this thing. And quite often that's how sin works. These two are typically yoked together. That the sin of commission follows the sin of omission. Because we're not keeping our house in order. Things that God said to do to keep the place cleaned up. Morally and spiritually and ethically. And we neglect that spiritual housekeeping. And so guess what? We're just ripe for the violation. That's what we see happening here. How do I know? Well, Exodus 34, 12, God's speaking to Moses, giving instructions for the future. And this kind of scenario, listen to what he says, Exodus 34, 12. Take care. Be careful. Be on guard. Be cautious. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go lest it become a snare in your midst. He told them this, this kind of trap and temptation might happen. So be on guard, be careful. And we even see here that the, the men of Israel were suspicious in verse 7, right? How do we know that you're not faking it? Well, look at our bread. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied. You satisfied? Uh, that's, they did not take care. They were, they're far too easily satisfied with the evidence. 
But that's not the only problem. Do you know that God had given Joshua a kind of phone a friend for these kinds of confusing situations? Do you know that? At his commissioning in Numbers 27, God is telling Moses how he's going to commission Joshua. And listen to what he says in verse 21. He, being Joshua, shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. This is a short form of the Urim and the Thummim. We're not quite sure how these, these work, but they're two stones that belong in the priest's ephod. And when there's a critical decision or a confusing uh, difficulty and you don't have enough uh, wisdom to find your way through, you inquire of the priest and he pulls out the Urim and the Thummim. Think of them like rolling the dice. And he would throw them down and God would, would be in charge of how they turn out or something like that. And this is Eleazar. And guess what? Eleazar doesn't die until Judges 24. Eleazar's still there. Wearing the priestly ephod with the Urim and the Thummim. And it never crosses Joshua's mind. Take care. And if you got a question, seek the Lord. Here, here's a priest with magical stones. And Joshua never uses them. He did not ask counsel from the Lord. So the sin of commission, they promised by the name of Yahweh. They drug his name and his reputation into a promise. That they would protect these lying Gibeonites. And now they're in what's called a double bind. There's no right way forward for them. They are stuck. What's the best way out of a double bind? Well, there's an obvious, clever answer. The best way out of a double bind is to not get into one in the first place. Right? And so before we go forward in the narrative and look at some wisdom for our lives, we need to look at this idea that, that don't get there in the first place. In fact, Samuel said this to King Saul in 1 Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices? Now that's what you do after you break a commandment and commit a sin of commission. Does he have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice is necessary because we mess up. But it's so much better to get it right the first time. And I feel like I need to say that. Yes, we have a, a happy ending in our faith. Yes, there's a pretty bow at the end for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But oh, what pain we cause ourselves and each other and the church and the kingdom of God and the world when we don't take this seriously. It's always better to obey the first time, always. And this brings us to our first point. If you want to just write this in, seek, uh, as in seek the Lord, seek, don't sin. In fact, there's a perfect inverse correlation. The more you seek the Lord, the less you will sin. The less you seek the Lord, the more you will sin. End of story. You can't keep that spiritual house in order and seek the Lord in everything we sin we mess up we make mistakes when we move faster than we pray 
We must learn to move at the speed of prayer. You believe that? I believe that with my whole heart. We must learn to move at the speed of prayer. Seek, don't sin. Here's E.M. Bounds on prayer. This is not a praying age. It is an age of great activity, of great movements, but one in which the tendency is very strong to stress the seen and the material and to neglect and discount the unseen and the spiritual. Prayer is the greatest of all forces because it honors God and brings him into active aid. Richard Foster said it this way, more and better prayer will bring the surest and readiest triumph to God's cause. And then David McIntyre in his little book, The Hidden Life of Prayer, that I highly recommend, those who pray well, work well. Those who pray most, achieve the grandest results. Can I give an example from the life of King David? He came well over 300 years later, and we have great evidence to suggest that King David knew and studied the book of Joshua, not just the commandments, but he caught these principles as he watched his predecessor miss key details. And David made a covenant, a commitment between himself and the Lord that he would not be that kind of leader. And so we have example after example. I'm going to fly through some. Uh, four of them in 1 Samuel 23. And look at how many times David inquires of the Lord. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? A couple verses, verses later, David inquired of the Lord once again. A couple verses later, then David said, Will the men of Keliah deliver me into, the, into his hand? Will Saul come down, as your servant has heard? A couple verses later, then David said, Will the men of Keliah deliver me? He asks the Lord again, constantly asking the Lord. That's not all. 1 Samuel Chapter 30, it says, so David inquired of the Lord. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 5, so David inquired of the Lord. A couple verses later, the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord. Every time he went out to war, he said, Lord, should I do this? And guess what? Last time's answer was not good for today's question. He had to ask the question again. He keeps seeking the Lord. And then finally, 2 Samuel 21, 1, and David sought the face of the Lord. And there's more. No time to get into it. He's just constantly abiding in the Lord and talking to the Lord. Love this for us as we consider being 21st century followers of Jesus uh, even taking some cues from a generation that knew how to pray better than us, Richard Baxter, he said, prayer is the breath of the new creature. You're a new creature if you're in Christ, aren't you? It's the very breath. George Hebert, Hebert, Herbert said, prayer is the soul's blood. One says it's breath, the other says it's blood. And then I love this from John Bunyan. You know, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, right? He goes, if thou art not a praying person, thou art not a Christian. Like, that's just impossible. Christians are people that follow Christ. We follow Christ, a praying Messiah, who told us to pray and taught us to pray. So to be a Christian, we are prayerful people, right? So how's your prayer life? How's your seeking? You doing any better than Joshua? You doing almost as good as David? David? 
Because listen, man, we are in the church age. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit, the Lord is listening. The sacrifice has been paid. We can have bold access into the very throne room of God in prayer and move mountains. Listen, this summer we are calling for, and I know we have different prayer meetings, and thank you, thank you, those of you who lead those prayer meetings. But we are suspending our discipleship classes to hold a Wednesday night prayer gathering each week from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. I believe we start this week, correct? Pastor Tyler and I will be here Wednesday nights, and we will be praying for the mission and impact for the kingdom of God of Journey Church. And we invite you to be there and be a part of that. Pray alone. Pray for your life and your needs. Pray together and pray for mission and vision and impact in our community. Please join us. Well, this is not an option for Joshua in our account. He's already gone past do not pass go, right? So he's in a double bind and first-time obedience is no longer available to him. I got two things for us that we can learn from him and his example. And let's look back into the narrative and see what they are. So this is starting in verse 16. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were the neighbors and lived among them. Uh-oh. The people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. It was only 28 miles away. These were not people from afar off. They were right around the corner. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherupah, uh, I can't say that, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the, the leaders. Why? Because they wanted to kill them. They wanted to break the oath. Come on, they lied to us. Can't we just do it? They, they were the recipients of the plunder. They'd get to go in and ransack and get all the gold and silver, the stuff that God did not allow them to take from Jericho. And I, now it was all theirs. And they're like, ah, oh, these rascals. And they lied. Why not take them out? Verse 19, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we must not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So here's the question that's strange to us. Since they lied and deceived, how is the oath still good? So I, that's just interesting to me. And here's the problem. They were given the tools to uncover the lie, and they went for it anyway. And now they had drawn the name and reputation of the covenant-keeping God of the universe into this story. And so now their oath in the name of Yahweh makes the first commandment to wipe them out impossible lest they do greater damage, greater damage. Because of the sacred, unbreakable nature of this oath, it could not be revoked even though they wanted to. King Solomon explained a promise, an oath, 
a covenant this way. In Ecclesiastes 5, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Be careful of the commitments and the promises you make. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So a person that makes a promise and breaks it, God calls a fool. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And long before that was written, Joshua and the leaders understood this principle. When you drag God's name into it, you're a man or woman of God and you make a promise. You give your word. You have to keep that. Psalm 15, David talked about the kind of person that has access to intimacy with God himself. Friendship with God. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And in verse 4, he says, one of the qualities that's necessary is this. The one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You gave your word. You got to keep it. Well, back to the question, what do you do when that happened? He gave his word. You got to keep it now. Here's the next fill in the blank. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Start obeying. Look, two wrongs never makes a right. You find yourself in a double bind. You send yourself into it by a sin of omission. You are not going to sin your way out of it. Just stop. You're stuck. Think about the entire human race right now. Everything that's happened up until this point since Adam and Eve's sin is a series of double binds and lesser outcomes in trying to figure out a path of redemption. And every time people manipulate and think that they could sin their way forward, they just make it worse. But every great story is about a person or a group of people that go, I don't know, we're stuck. What do we do? Well, here's the thing. Stop sinning. That's not going to help anything or anyone. Oh, you might feel anger and like in our scripture reading, I want revenge. It never makes it better. And I hear Christians talk this way. Oh, I, I don't get offended. I get even. I've heard pastors say that. Of Christian churches. And that's just not in the cards. You just stop the sin. Stop the bleeding. Stop the hemorrhage. Start obeying. Another miss will only make things worse. How do we know this? Do you know that King Solomon over, or actually King Saul, bad guy, over 300 years later actually violated Joshua's oath? You know that? In his zeal, and he thought he was so, so self-righteous, he was going to wipe out the Gibeons, Gibeonites because they were Canaanites. And so he started to slay them. Later on, when David becomes king, God judges the entire nation, and David seeks the Lord and says, what's going on? And God lets him know it's because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites in violating the oath that Joshua made to them. Isn't that fascinating? That God was going to judge 
Saul and the nation because they were breaking this oath. Breaking the oath always makes it worse. Second tier sin, sinning your way out of something, never works, makes it worse. It's like, okay, you got a broken bone. Don't twist it and crack it and shove it. That's called a compound fracture. Don't do that. That's what sin and second layer and third layer sin does. And we know people, it's, it's us. Times when we've compounded the fracture of damage in our own lives, in our marriages, in our households, in our churches, it never makes it better. Let's stop the bleeding, start obeying. Well, what else can we learn from Joshua and the leaders in the midst of this mess? What can you and I do in the midst of our double binds that we find? And here's the fill in the blank that we'll look at the text. Find the most redemptive path and humbly move forward. Perfect is long gone. Okay, for most of our lives, centuries ago. I mean, we're born in sin. We express sin from the time we're children. We get born again by coming to faith in Christ and he forgives and, and heals all of our sins. But it doesn't mean we stop sinning. And we continue on this path of breaking things. Missing the mark. Mistakes and misses. And now we find ourselves in situations that are broken and damaged and icky. What do you do? This is the story of the people of God. Perfect is gone. Not a chance. Not a choice. But you can find the most redemptive path and humbly move forward in it. Look what happens. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them and said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, Where are you from, when you were dwelling amongst us? Now therefore you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, of what, uh, drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we fear greatly for our lives. Duh. I mean, these are scrappy rascals, but you got to admire them. Instead of trying to band together and fight, they believed that it was true, at least that much, right? It's like, so, I don't know, let's lie. Let's try anything. They're reprobates. What else are they going to do? But at least they have the fear of God and the fear of the Jews. So we greatly feared for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right to you in your sight, do to us whatever it is. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in, that, in the place that he should choose. Men and women, this turns out to be a very redemptive path forward. For Joshua, it is the way out of the double bind. I can't obey perfectly at this point, but I can do something. And this is the something that he is able to do. And that's good for Joshua and the Jews, but can I also tell you who else it's really good for? The Gibeonites. You gotta love these reprobates. 
I mean, they're like, like pedestrian sinners. This is like the rock star that just loves to shoot heroin and sleep around. They're crazy. They're just absolutely crazy, but they go, I don't want to die. And so what do we do? Let's lie. That's like normal for them. And they're just looking for a, a path forward. And we discover a very redemptive story for the Gibeonites. Yeah, let me explain that. The Gibeonites, while being cursed as servants, got to live. And there's great evidence. There's great evidence that they became what was called the Nephinim. Translated means the given ones. They were given to assist the priests in the service of the tabernacle and then the temple. The Nethinim show up again and again in the Old Testament after the exile. A couple places, 1 Chronicles 9-2, now the first to dwell again in their possessions, in their cities, were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the Nethinim. We read up there the temple servants. Two times in, in the book of Ezra, he was the priest in charge of the temple during the return of the exile. And we see in Ezra 2, the temple servants, or Nethinim, and then there's actually some heads of household named. They actually have genealogies. There's, these are real people. Ezra 2, again, in verse 58, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants, 392 of them. Ezra chapter 8 says 220 Nethanin were actually there serving the Lord post-exile. And then this one's mind-blowing. Nehemiah 3.26. Nehemiah's famous for rebuilding the wall in like 40 days, right? And all the Jews and the tribes are working on the wall. And guess who's working on the wall too? The Nethanim. Listen, it says, The temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. Love what James Montgomery Boyce says, the Gibeonites were made servants to the Jews, but the place of their service was specifically said to be the altar of the Lord. In other words, although servants, they had the privilege of being brought close to the spiritual things on a regular basis in latter years. And when the Jews went off after false gods, the Gibeonites would still be standing at the altar where the true God had ordained that sacrifices should be made for sins. And so while many of God's people went off after their lesser gods, the Gibeonites were stuck in a place of sacred blessing. And it's highly likely that over the centuries, while serving the one true God in the tabernacle and temple, that many of them became part of the covenant community of faith. Isn't God good? All he has to work with over the centuries are the double binds that we get ourselves into. You might be in one right now. 
You might be that person that every time you go to the word or, or to prayer, you are haunted by something you didn't, did in the past. You're wondering if God forgave you yet. You're wondering if he forgave you. How much of my future inheritance did it destroy? How disqualified am I now? And I'm guessing every single one of us has sinned to that degree at some point where you go, yeah, I might be forgiven, but I'm somewhat disqualified. Listen, that's the only kind of people there are. And the church is made up of those kinds of stories, people that get into double binds and are stuck. And perfect is long gone, and that's what the gospel is for. This morning, can I just ask you, what, what are your sins of omission? Things that you should be doing, should have done, that you've neglected. Can you name those? They've likely led to sins of commission. You did some really bad stuff. You're haunted by them. If you're not, maybe you have a seared conscience. Sin should break our heart. Got any stuff like that in your life? You can't go back. Perfect obedience is off the table. But you can begin again right now. Renew obedience from this point on. Find the most redemptive path that God reveals to you and humbly walk in it. Can I give you a bottom line for the sermon? Because all of us have whiffed, misses, mistakes, sins of commission, sins of omission, minimize damage. Maximize mission. You see that even in this account and Joshua finding himself in that spot, stopping, going, okay, we can't keep sending our way through this. Minimizes, minimizes the damage. And then the plan that God reveals not only releases them from the double bind, but Gibeonites in the kingdom of God? Are you kidding me? A people slated for destruction are now in glory. Maybe you identify with Joshua. You need a path forward. Minimize damage, maximize mission. Your life story stupid things that you've done, say you're sorry, make restitution, ask what else, what next, what now. Find that re redemptive path, God's got a redemptive path for you. Maybe, maybe you identify with the rascal Gibeonites, a people who had exhausted the patience of God and were slated for destructions, beggars and liars looking to save their lives. And by the way, this is where faith in a life of following Jesus begins. 
Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Remember, we started with Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages is death. We are slated for destruction. Our misses, our missing the mark, deserves death. Eternal separation from a holy, loving God. A people slated for destruction. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus of Nazareth took the oath himself and made it right for each one of us. This morning you're, you're a believer and you need a path forward. Guess what? Jesus paid the price. Jesus has wisdom. Jesus loves you. Would you seek him? He'll show you the path forward. You're here and you go, I don't know Jesus. I'm heading for destruction. Jesus bought your ticket out of destruction. Today, will you call on him? Will you scrap your way to him? You don't have to lie like the Gibeonites. Just come to him. Just come to him. Be forgiven, set free, and on the path to an eternity in the presence of God. Won't you call on him right now? Either kind of person. Let's pray. Father, Father, we see ourselves in Joshua, we see ourselves in the Gibeonites. We need a path forward for our lives. We need a path forward for our church. We need a path forward for the mission of God. Lord, we've made so many mistakes, personally and individually, and of a moral and spiritual sense, but we've also made foolish mistakes with our time and our energy and our money and our relationships. And Lord, we need redemption. We need a path forward, so Lord, would you show us? Would you forgive us? Would you heal us? Lord, for those of us who don't know that our sins are forgiven, we call on you right now in the name of Jesus. Please forgive our sins, Lord. Please come into our lives. Please make us children of God. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.